0: The VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed
1: on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, September the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the Come On With It edition of Open Line on this glorious Friday. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial in the queue and on the air is 2735211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is eighty six twenty six, And it is a glorious day in this neck of the woods. Really beautiful, bright blue sky. It's warm out. It's over 20 degrees already, I think. Humidex is going to push in the mid-20s, maybe 25, 26 today. So not bad for the 23rd of September, the second day of fall. Okay, we talk about how companies and businesses and industries have to change with the times. So you either get out in front of it or you're chasing your tail, which is bad for business. When I say Nintendo, what comes to mind? Probably like Pokemon, Mario Brothers, Zelda, and the like. Nintendo, the company was founded in 1889, 133 years ago today. And they were in the business of uh, playing cards. So, I did you know this stuff, Dave? I had no idea until I read it this morning. So it was founded by a fellow named Fusijiro Yamuchi. So the company uh, dates back pre-home electricity. And so the playing cards, were apparently, what were they called? Hanafuda. So it was the only tolerated bit of gambling allowed in that country at that moment in time. And so they went through all of the years to transition into you know, Mario Brothers from Hanafuda uh, playing cards. So apparently Nintendo was thought to mean Temple of Free Hanafuda. referring to its legality apparently. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. So the cards featured things like cranes and fish and koi. Then they moved on and signed a deal with Walt Disney to put some of their characters on it. They were one of the biggest names in the playing card business, even after World War II. Eventually, of course, transitioning into what we are all familiar with, with the integrated circuit and the Nintendo gaming console that people are most familiar with. But I had no idea it was a playing card company, but 1889. Uh, Interesting enough, what do you think was the first color series that appeared on ABC television? The Jetsons. The Jetsons of all things in 1962 made their appearance, and of course the futuristic cartoon, which I quite enjoyed to be honest, George and Jane and Judy and Elroy and Astro, Mr. Spacely. The Jetsons, 1962. All right. So there's a ceremony today taking place in Turkey. It's the official dedication of the Gallipoli Newfoundland Memorial. It's the last in the trail of the caribou series. You know, of course, marking the sacrifice of the Newfoundland Regiment during the First World War. You know, people talk about reasons to travel. And they want to go to, you know, whether it be UNESCO World Heritage Sites or whatever the case may be. A friend of mine is now planning a trip to Turkey because they've been waiting for this final installation of the caribou to have a vacation that focuses in on following the trail of the caribou. You know, some people bemoan the costs associated with these things, but it's pretty important memorials if you ask me, and that's only my opinion, yours is welcome on the show, but there's a ceremony today to complete. The trail. This is something that I've brought up on the show before, but I don't know if it even got any calls or traction. When times are tight like they are today. Have you noticed how the world of tipping has been expanded? It generally was you tip your bartender, you tip your waitress, you might tip your hairdresser. But now, almost anywhere you go, when you're past the handheld device to put in your information for your debit card or your, or your credit card, there's a tip nudge. And that's what they call it, a tip nudge. It used to be as low as maybe you could offer 10%. The one that I most recently saw, the lowest number offered, 18%. You know 15 kind of feels like what people go to is that that's the normal tip if you are a tipper. It's also interesting when you look at other countries. And when we worked in the hotel business in Alberta, you notice quite quickly who tips and who doesn't. Americans, Canadians tippers. The British, nah, Australians, nope. Germans, nope. It's tipping, it's a culture in this country. And so now when the prompts are at 18%, it can be kind of frustrating. You know, I know some restaurants have moved away from gratuities for their serving staff and just pay them a higher hourly wage. I think some people appreciate that. But what does it mean for the motivation to do your level best as a, as a server? Look, it's a tough racket. You know, Working with the public is brutal sometimes, whether it be in retail or yes, in the service industry. So, you know, it used to be like I'd waited tables for a while. You dig in, you put on your biggest, brightest smile, and you ramp, you ramp up your accent and you do your best to get the biggest tip you possible. Can you possibly can. So, but that tip nudge, and now everywhere, like tipping your mechanic, I never heard the like. But now everywhere you turn, they're asking for a tip. And, you know, when you add in the price for whether it be going to one retail outlet or another or a bar or a restaurant or whatever else or a hairdresser. But the tip nudge, I think, is something that's kind of a bit of a double whammy out there. But if you want to talk about it, and I do think some people really appreciate it. Like I know, for instance, down at Mallard, they're paying their wait staff an hourly wage that is, a, I think it's 20 bucks. So, But there's no tip required in addition to the price on your bill. So anyway, the tip nudge is real. I right. wanted to give a shout-out to the folks at Seniors NL and Verifin. So coming up on September 29th at 7 p.m., we've long promoted the drive-in bingo on behalf of the Eating Disorder Foundation. This one's in support of Seniors NL, so it's down at the Jack Byrne Arena coming up on the 29th at 7 p.m., leading me into the anticipated report coming from the new Seniors Advocate, Susan Walsh. Pretty important role, obviously. You know, one thing that the office is unable to do to deal with very specific cases. Just looking at uh, seniors related issues at a high level. And of course, important to do. There was a report in 2019 that had a bunch of recommendations. So we'll hear from Susan Walsh as to what type of progress has been made on those recommendations. Of course, it was Suzanne Brake at the time. The report was called Long May Your Big Jib Draw. OK. So some of the key areas, and we all know we can see into the future regarding the aging demographic. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I get in trouble for saying that. But that's just the reality. And one day, I hope to be a senior. So whether it be home support, and that's a big one. I mean, if you look at the numbers, and you think about you know, the numbers of long-term care beds required, and some of the forecasts we've seen in some chronic illnesses, or whether it be Alzheimer's and dementia, the preparation has to be done in advance. We can't wait until the 11th hour or after the fact to have the policies and programs and funding in place to deal with the realities of the population, young and old alike. So, in home support, when we talk about a place to have a healthy, safe, dignified environment to age, a lot of people would like to be at home. Now, of course, if your medical realities mean that you need some assistance and a long term care facility is better for you, then okay. But a lot of folks would rather stay at home. So, what does home support look like? So, we can talk about the dignity and the safety and the familiarity for seniors to age in place, in their own home, where they're comfortable where they want to be. Even, h- I hate to bring money into these things, but of course it will eventually boil down to money. What, the most expensive thing to do in the province is a fortnight night in the hospital. And long-term care facilities, personal care homes can be very expensive in, by bed by bed. So what would it cost, what would it look like to have an expansion of home support services to help seniors live where they want to live? close by their family, close by their friends, because remember, when you're looking for a bed, you might not necessarily get one in the facility closest to your town, closest to your home. You might end up far afield. So, home support and what that's going to look like. Then, of course, the general concept of affordability. Notably, and we talk about food all the time, and we can continue to do that, but as home heating becomes, you know, at this time of the year, becomes much more focused conversation. So we need an update, as soon as possible, about the negotiation between the province and the federal government about what a carbon tax is going to look like here. When the initial deal was struck, then by Premier Ball, there was an exemption afforded to home heating fuels. Now, when we talk about your driving habits and, you know, reducing the amount of time you spend behind the wheel, and or carpooling or walking or riding your bike or getting on a bus, you know, we can do things to adjust the amount of gas we consume, but there's no behavioral issue that can deal with home heating. It's a necessity. And I know people make decisions between what they eat, how they eat, when they eat, and going to the mall to stay warm, those types of things that we've heard over the years, but there's got to be an exemption for home heating. The impact it would have on elderly people in this province if there's an additional tax on their home heating will be potentially devastating. You know, we see the home heating rebate, a one time only type of thing, and that's helpful, and the applications are now open. But for the long term, you know, I get it. People think we change our behavior with price point pressures, but home heating? There's got to be an exemption there. That's some of the things they'll be looking at. Okay, let's keep going. Keeping up with the times. You know, it's not that long ago that the province's healthcare digital healthcare care system, Meditech, was under siege with some cyber attackers from who knows where, demanding who knows what. We still don't have much in the way of those details. But it brings upon a highlight about just how quick and the breakneck pace with which technology advances, versus the snail's pace that governments and legislators are able to keep up with. So we're a bit behind here. You know, there is going to be a big move to digitizing all kinds of stuff, health records and otherwise, but the privacy commissioners from all the provinces and the territories were actually in this province, being hosted by Michael Harvey, to talk about how we're going to have to need some resolutions and very quick moves by government to ensure that digitized healthcare is protected. It is so critically important. And remember, when the cyber attack took place on the Meditech system, it was talked about by security experts, privacy experts around the country, as being a national security threat. A lot of your information that you don't need or want out there is inside digital healthcare records. You know, even when you go back, we've been talking about the mammography results what have you, and the Cameron Inquiry. One of the recommendations there, was for a digitized medical database, But we've got to make sure that you can't have these criminals breaking into it, stealing and sharing your information. And we still don't know if there was a ransom required on any of this stuff, and some of the recommendations from the experts in the field about don't pay the ransom because you don't even know if they're going to follow through or just simply take your money. Anyway, you won't talk about it. Let's go. Let's get down to the story of yesterday. So for two straight weeks now, we've had some very troubling comments and required comments coming from the RNC. So it's last week with the two home invasions, And you're told, lock your doors. Don't answer if you're not expecting somebody. Don't answer if the door if you don't recognize the person knocking. Okay, and that gave people reason for pause and for some people real legitimate fear. Then yesterday, here comes the alerts that there's a, a shooter on the loose in Conception Bay South. So there's not a whole lot of detail here, but there's three shootings. We know that two people were in serious condition. We don't have an update on their condition in hospital. And so out come the alerts. Curiously, I had some emails overnight saying, enough of the fear. But how can the RNC do anything but do what they did yesterday? And from my personal opinion, I think they did a great job in communication and obviously made quick work of apprehending the suspect on uh, on St. Thomas' line yesterday afternoon. So, regarding the fear business, you know, when you look at what happened in Nova Scotia and the criticisms of the RCMP and the fact that they didn't put out a warning in a timely fashion and at the end of the day there was 18 people dead. For the RNC, how could they not do what they did? And you know, I, I read the email and it was thoughtfully presented and, you know, there was more than one of them saying that, you know, we're just stoking or fanning the flames of fear. They have no choice in these, uh, in these types of circumstances. They just don't. And then, but it does bring upon that sense of the volatility, especially here in the northeast, northeast Avalon. So these things are becoming fairly common. I have no interest in spreading or stoking any fear. It's not it does me no good, does you no good. But good job on the RS, RNC here yesterday. And then you see things like the schools in secure mode. One of my sons was working at CBS yesterday afternoon, so I had that additional layer of worry that came over me quite quickly. And I could feel it. And I was nervous yesterday. I suppose, especially because one of my children were out there, but I was nervous for my fellow Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who were in the area. And we, you know, there's some details about how the apprehension went down, and what have you. And it's all interesting to watch. But it does pose some of the big questions here, right? People will think, well, what led to this? And I don't know. I just don't know. A popular opinion will be that it's related to drugs. And it might or might not be. But we know that some of these... Criminals and some of the shootouts we've seen and the gang rivalries have been indeed based in the drug trade. Which begs some massive questions. Because, you know, I see people say, well, you just lock them up and throw away the key. Okay, the war on drugs. All right. The unfortunate reality is neither of those has worked. Right? It, there's a sense of feel-good that you get your little bit of blood You know, you're a criminal, let's put you away and never see you again. Never see the light of day. Except the next little drug dealer and organized crime boss is right behind them. So it just simply has not worked. I get where people are coming from. Punishment is required. Absolutely it is. But what do we actually do to make a pragmatic difference for the amount of people suffering from drug abuse, opioid overdoses, and importantly, public safety? What do we do? Because at this moment in time, there'll be some people in different pockets of the province, notably yesterday in CBS, saying, why don't the police go to where I know the drug trade is happening? This is a crack house. How come the cops aren't busting it? That's a good question. I know that there's always that concept in policing that you chase the little guy to get the big guy. Okay, but what does that mean for the potential for this type of violence, these types of crimes? The fear that I would imagine Washed over a lot of folks on the northeast, northeast Avalon yesterday. I'm sitting down at the house, and bzz, 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 there goes my phone with an alert shelter in place. The entirety of the Northeast Avalon. So I think the cops did a good job. I think they communicated effectively. They did make quick work of picking up the alleged shooter, and we'll see what becomes of it. Anyway, you want to talk about it? We can do it. Uh, da, 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 da had an, in, I'll call it interesting, conversation with the Minister of Health Community Services yesterday, Tom Osborne, about a variety of things inside of healthcare. And we can talk about any short, or any specific issue, or one clinic, or one ER, or one hospital, or another. But it's some of the fascinating numbers I read this morning regarding the number of nurses who are casual nurses, and they have no interest whatsoever in joining the ranks of the permanent full-time. There's a whopping big number. Not every health authority report those types of numbers, but doesn't that paint a... a A difficult picture. If you have nurses who are trained, educated, on the job, they've been offered things like retention bonuses, $3,000 signing bonus to take on a permanent full-time position and are unwilling to do it, add that to the thing about, you know, recruiting and retaining a nurse. Expanding the number of seats at nursing schools, okay. But when you have people who are on the ground and they will not take a signing bonus of $3,000, a retention bonus to be permanent full-time, They prefer the casual label, so it gives a bit more flexibility in their own life. But those numbers are out there in a couple of news stories kicking around if you want to check them out. All right, very quickly, some of the travel-related matters. uh, It's been reported pretty widely now by some of the major news outlets in the country that there is going to be an expiry of the vaccination restrictions to enter Canada on the 30th of September. Makes sense to me. ARRIVE CAN, which has been very controversial, and I will admit freely again, I'm not so sure what the big controversy is surrounding it, but that's going to become optional. I think people will be pleased enough with that. There has not been a final decision made about masking in public areas, in particular planes and trains, but it looks like ArriveCan CAN, optional vaccination restrictions gone at the end of the month, your thoughts on that matter. And like me, and like many of you, you will have friends who are on the south co- southwest coast of the island and in PEI, Nova Scotia, I don't know what Hurricane Fiona is going to bring when it makes landfall later this evening. The track is unpredictable, as we all know. Preparations are ongoing in many parts of the province for what might be a heavy wind event, in particular. And with the leaves still out there in full force, you know, my big maples, in my backyard catch a lot of wind. But I got friends in Nova Scotia that I, you know, I watched some of their news yesterday and read some of the reports come from their meteorologists. Uh, Ryan Snodden in particular, they're bracing for what could be just brutal. So fingers crossed it's not as bad as it feels at this moment in time. And again, that brings us back to how media does their job to prepare people, to inform people, versus what might come across in some corners as fear. And, you know, fear sells. If it bleeds, it leads, that kind of stuff. And sometimes the media is damned if they do and damned if they don't. If you don't give the accurate information out, you will be roasted for not having people the ability and the time to prepare for things like weather events, for Fiona. So fingers crossed for folks who will be in harm's way of what looks at this moment in time to be a pretty whopping big storm. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline.facm.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a call, so do exactly that during this break. We're taking that break, and then we're coming back. And Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the proprietor at Mallard Cottage in Water Street West. That's Todd Perrin. Chef, you on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? This morning? Great today. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Beautiful morning. I uh, just
2: kept your preamble there talking about tipping. And I uh, thought I'd call in and chime in with my 10 cents for that. Sure. Lord knows I've shot I've and talked a lot about it the last number of years. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think that and then the small clarification, I think that one, when we made the changes that we made at Mallard, you know, early in the pandemic last year or whatever it was now, I don't remember, but um, it was never a no-tipping model. What we suggested was that we are, we are appropriately pricing our offering so that we can raise the wages of the people that work with us to what we consider to be, uh, you know, a, a, a better-than-living wage. Um, tips were always... Uh, available you could still tip oh, sure. uh, but what we're what we're what we're suggesting was that you know the way i put it in, in the way that i speak as you know is like I, I want if someone wants to leave a tip because they feel like they had an, a, you know a, a superior uh, service uh, that tip goes to buy a pair of fancy shoes doesn't go to pay for rent um you know so it, it's tipping culture as it has existed is a broken model it is discriminatory it is
1: What frustrated me as a server was it was luck of the draw. I could get a bad table or two or three bad tables in a row while my mate across the restaurant got two or three good ones in a row. I worked just as hard as that person did. I went home with uh, 15 bucks and he went home with 100. That also bothered me, to be honest.
2: Yeah, well, it creates, you know, in that dynamic, it creates a hunger Games scenario inside of, of a business, of a restaurant. And I mean, I try to manage that you know like you said you know people are fighting over tables and whatnot and really so because when you when you are reliant on what someone is deciding to leave to you kind of at a whim uh, to pay your rent i mean that, that's a who can work under those conditions and that is the conditions that you know the restaurant industry across north america and the hospitality industry has promoted or, or lived with for forever and ever and ever and and you know i think that it is a detriment to the overall industry, you know, hospitality and tourism generally, because that service industry is where we see tipping culture, you know, has a high impact on, uh, you know, what people get paid. Um, it holds back the industry and it, and it keeps us in the dark. I mean, you know, people don't know what they're going to get paid when they go to work. I mean, they'll go to work under those conditions. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, um, you know, at the other side of it is a little bit, you could talk about this for the whole of your show. It is a very nuanced, it is a very uh, lot of moving parts to the conversation about tipping. The reality of it is, um, you know, you have people that come in and are offended if you tell them that, no, no, there's no tipping. But I want to leave a tip. How can I leave a tip? Uh, You know, So, so you get customers who don't like that. You get customers that don't like the fact that they're prompted for a tip. You get customers that don't like, the percentage that they're prompted for. You get customers that, oh, no, no, I just put a percentage on because I don't want to do the math. So, you know, every single person that you deal with inside of your business has a different opinion and a different level of either happiness or disappointment about how you handle it. So, you know, it it becomes very, very difficult to manage. Um, So, you know, the way we approach it is, look, we're going to place our our food so that I can pay everybody, you know, what I consider to be reasonable for what they're they're doing. And if people want to tip, they tip, and you know, they, and, and we don't. And you know, the other thing too is, customers feel embarrassed uh, if they don't tip. They feel a pressure to tip. You know, like you know, they, you lay a thing in front of them, and the tip prompt is there. Even though there's one that says no tip. You know, in our restaurant, it's you know, custom tip, no tip, fifteen percent, eighteen percent, twenty percent. So you can pick with anyone that you want, and no one's going to judge you if you don't tip. Sure.
1: Let me, yeah. I'll get your get your thoughts on this uh, comment that I also made off the top. I, I, I something I think is maybe real, but I'll get your thoughts. In the tipping world. What it did also encourage was ensuring that the server, knowing that so much of their revenue, nightly and weekly, comes in the form of a tip. And so consequently, I'm going to, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to put my best foot forward, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to be personable, I'm going to smile, I'm going to hustle. So consequently, I might make a nice tip tonight and throughout the course of the week. If that is not part of the culture, dealing with the public is already bad enough. It just is, we all know it. What happens with the, I don't know if it's a work ethic thing, but what happens with the kind of hustle when you don't have a tip dangled out there in front of you? What do you think?
2: Well, now, Betty, you know, that's a massive conversation of why does anybody go to work work and work their hardest for what they get paid? I mean, you know, what we've tried to do is create a culture where people are, are treated with respect by their employer. We try to make sure that they're treated with respect by their customer. And we try to create a workplace where people are happy to come to work and they want to be part of the success of the organization sure and and, and if, if you can't you know get behind that and get uh, you know a, a living wage uh well then boy <laughs> you know what can you do like you know you, you, you can't uh, you can't enforce
1: Tough racket to begin with. Uh, the connection is a little bit dodgy here this morning, but Todd, I always appreciate your time. Thanks for the call. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I mean, and he's right. It is a nuanced conversation. It is a big conversation, but it adds into all of the other things we talk about with cost of doing whatever you like to do with your entertainment budget, or if you like to eat out, or if you like to get your hair done, whatever the case would be. So if you want to pick up where Todd left off, we can do that. One more before we get to the new or the break. Let's go to line two. John, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Great today, you?
3: Good, good. I just want to give you an update. Uh, I uh, visit my mom uh, with oh, the yes? uh, funeral with the Queen. Mm-hmm. And uh, Well, what was that last? Well, Monday passed, right? That's right. Uh, right. Anyway, I, I just really, I'll just tell you what I want to do. Uh, two things I want to do today. Uh, well, it's come on Friday, right? So there's two things I want to do is uh, I want to promote responsible drinking for seniors. Responsible drinking for seniors. I have the queen to blame for that because uh, I had that uh, ounce of uh, Bombay gin with mom, and we sipped it all morning while the funeral was on, and you're not going to believe it. Her pain was gone in her shoulders. She's, she's bedridden, and she's also in a wheelchair. And you know what? It's unreal. She felt great for the rest of the day. We only had an ounce each. And it, I'm telling you. Okay,
1: I don't, I don't know if we should be promoting oh. a pain relief okay. by self-medicating all the same, Okay, okay. Sure. I apologise for that. Okay, what and uh, just to, well, where's uh, the bouquet you'd like to throw before uh, I have to go?
3: Okay, I wanted to thank, uh, yeah, I wanted to thank V uh, O C M, and yourself as of, of uh, giving me a chance to, uh, you know, uh, speak about my mom and. How it was, uh, you guys, you know, encouraged me to, you know, continue with visiting her, and I got the permission to go in at 6.30. I want to let you know that it was a great morning with my mom. Good. And uh, it was fantastic. We really enjoyed it, and uh, it really uh, really made her day. And I also wanted to thank you for, at the end, that you came out with it. And uh, it was a Friday, and you did play the song, You too, It's a beautiful day. And you know what, Patty, It's a beautiful day today and I want to just give an update and say thanks for your support and, and, uh, and encouragement, and let me voice that uh, and, uh, on the radio because it really helped me, and it helped my mom, and I thought it was a really nice thing for you to do. And I, look,
1: I was happy to do it, and I'm glad you enjoyed the day with your mother. It would have been a shame if you couldn't have got that permission yeah. to uh, to visit and watch the funeral yeah. and the proceedings afterwards with your mom. So I'm glad it worked out the way it did, John, I appreciate yeah. the call.
3: i just got one more quick thing to say. Uh, you know when you said you knocked uh, your tooth out, Uh, hanging out over the fence yeah okay I got to say something to you that (laughs) most people thought that you had your tooth knocked out with fighting and hockey because you used to apparently you got a reputation for dropping the
1: mitts (laughs) I I lost one doing that too oh
3: did you yeah okay because I was going to tell you that I think I'd stick with the latter one with dropping the mitts because the fence one is tragic too because I really felt uh, bad for your mom you said your mom took a really bad but <laughs> she that's, wasn't that, that's the truth is I mean sorry that's the truth that you knocked it out on the fence
1: well yeah we were wow. t- it was winter time and I uh, you know I guess I kind of just yeah tripped up a bit or misjudged the uh, the proximity to the fence I smacked <laughs> my face off and out goes the fr- oh. one of my front teeth oh. and yes I did indeed lose one on the ice
3: okay well. last, last question do you still play hockey now because a lot of people are wondering because you said you you're not in the best shape like you're always promoting like eating better and you want I'm to doing do a bit better yeah, doing better for yourself, and you said. this But do you still play rec hockey? Like, I, you play I haven't been out now? there.
1: No, I, you know what? I've got, what? I've got so many, the knees are wonky and the what? back is really tender. And last time so, I played, I was it was weak recovery. Poor so old my back was gone. Of
3: us would like to go see you play. Like we thought you were still playing. Like
1: nah, with, nah.
3: Direct, with your buddies, right?
1: You I wish about? I was, but I'm not, John. not I got to run to the break, but okay. I appreciate the
3: Listen, update. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to V O C M and. Uh, how do you come out with it. Oh, listen. Can you also uh, reiterate, mention about the food fishery again, please? Sure. The, with the storm come. Listen. Thank you very much.
1: Okay, John. All the best.
3: Okay, we still love you.
1: <laughs> love you too, buddy. Okay, bye. Okay, bye, bye. bye. Yeah, food fishery schedule open on 24th, right? Uh, run to the 2nd of October. People were wondering. Well, will there be any adjustments made by DFO, given the fact that the pending weather might interrupt a couple of those days? Generally speaking, they have not been nimble on that front, uh, but we'll see what happens. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of show left to speak with you. Don't go away.
4: Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back.
1: Let's go. Line one, Bruno, you're on the air. Hi,
5: Patty. How are you
1: doing? Not too bad. Do you have me on speaker, Bruno?
5: Yes. Uh, no.
1: Why? You having trouble hearing? Just me a longer? little bit hollow. Yeah. There's been a couple of weak connections already this morning, but that's not too bad. Go ahead.
5: All right. I got uh, e- earplugs. Uh, so anyway, let me know if it, it's bad. Okay. Uh, while I was waiting, I just double checked one more time, hoping against all hope that we here in Cape Breton are not dead center on where uh, that hurricane's going to come ashore. So, you know, we had 160K winds in 2016 and 220 millimeters of rain in about eight hours, and it really made a mess of things. So it looks like this might even be as bad, if not worse, than that. So wish us luck, and, uh, you, <laughs> and the west side of your island looks like it's going to be next.
1: It's certainly going to get so, some of the impact of the hurricane. I thought I heard an interesting comment from... Uh, one of the meteorologists this morning saying don't get hung up on the the categories don't pretend that it's not a big deal if it's no longer a hurricane when it makes landfall Uh, the post tropical designation is still plenty dangerous the wind field expands so fingers crossed for people in your neck of the woods bruno i really mean that because i got friends close by where you live as well and they're quite worried i was listening to ryan snodden yesterday they're they're talking about generational storm Uh, so Hopefully the track, and hopefully it gets through quick. That's one of the good news pieces, I think, though, is that it doesn't look like it's going to sit over the land for very long. So maybe one bad day, and hopefully not too bad, and then it moves out. So fingers crossed for you and your, your fellow Nova Scotians.
5: Yes, looks like this is going to be a regular thing. Too bad. Uh, I wanted to talk, on, uh, talk first about your uh, Woodside Energy Company pulling out of uh, the Orphan Basin. Uh, now, at first glance, it may look like uh, it's a terrible, a terrible thing. But I, I I kind of think that if you look at the bright side, that uh, it may be uh, just what the, the doctor ordered. First of all, a little bit of speculation on why Woodside would pull out And my guess is that that basin is rich as it appears to be in terms of fossil fuels. It's beyond 200 miles. And that means that you're going to have to share the benefits with because it's for the common benefit of mankind. I forget exactly the wording in the uh, UN charters. But if it's beyond 200 miles, it's uh, not a free for all—you've got to share that with all of the poor nations of the world. So uh, I, I, I think that should be the case always. But I have I have a feeling that has a large part of the reason why they're pulling out of a rich oil field, and why others may
1: as well. Uh, but the argument there—you might be right. I don't know. But we don't even know who'd be responsible for paying. That's the argument that the provinces actually have, and they've stood their ground and says it's not on us, it's the federal government has to pay, because the federal government signed on to that UN treaty, not the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, that might be a hair split that is yeah. <laughs> obviously not going to be welcomed in Ottawa, but that's the argument that's taking place here. Yeah, well, you
5: guys are forgetting what happened in 1949,
1: I guess. <laughs> what was that? Uh,
5: you joined Confederation.
1: Yeah, but the, the federal government took it upon themselves to sign on to something. Should that not mean, and this is the province's argument, should that not mean that the federal government live up to the obligation they signed on to? I mean, they're part of this process as well, so they certainly shouldn't get off scot-free and, and pay nothing.
5: Well, I agree. I agree with you, but uh, you, all of the parties have to sit down and work, work it out. the bottom line is the money's got to go to those uh, third-world nations. And uh, who who comes up with the money is a moot point. The important thing is that uh, you got to find out, figure out how much money is owed to them, and then work from there. <clears throat> now, I, I also wanted to talk uh, for a minute about uh, the wind uh, project. Just uh, before we
1: get to that, so what Bruno's referring to, just in case people are kind of lost, wondering what we're talking about here. And I just pulled it up because I couldn't remember the exact uh, name of it either. It's Article 82 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And so outside of the 200 nautical mile limit, that means that it is not the protected economic zone that we have inside 200 miles. So there will be... Hundreds of millions of dollars at stake here. Hundreds of millions of dollars that someone has, is going to have to pay into what is the acronyms UNCLOS. And that's right. It goes to developing nations as part of a document that was signed. began back in the 1970s and I think finally ratified in 2003. Just for people's information. Now you go ahead.
5: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I took part in some of those uh, law of the sea negotiations uh, for uh, highly migratory species. Uh, anyway, that's why I, I, I have a particular interest, uh, but, uh, getting to the wind on your West coast, ironic as it is, because I, I keep telling you the wind is your answer and I'm convinced it is your offshore wind, but you've gone given the rights to uh, uh, Risley. You don't like me calling him,
1: uh, uh,
5: Robert Barron. Well I
1: don't care what you call him but you, you said it about 25 times in two minutes that's what kind of got on my nerves but anyway but how have we given anybody anything yet? Has it been green lit that I didn't hear about?
5: Uh, well I'm uh, not, not quite sure what, what your point is but m- mine is that is already pushing you around uh, threatening he, that uh, you better hurry up and give him uh, his per- environmental permits, or he'll think about finding another third-world uh, jurisdiction that he can rape and pillage. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't uh, understand uh, why. And I think I've heard you say that he's getting it for nothing.
1: I didn't say no anything way. of the like.
5: Uh, well, uh, anyway, I hope you're. I hope that's true
1: well i didn't say it because uh, i don't i have no idea about the financial arrangements nor do i think anybody does
5: yeah the,
6: the, the in fact i've said i've
1: said the exact opposite as a matter of fact i've said you know and i asked resley this question i asked mr parson's this question what's in it for us jobs is one thing the expanded tax base but what's in it for us in other areas of big industry, there's a thing called a royalty. Is there such a thing as a royalty on the use of the water? Is there a royalty on the wind? However you measure that. Uh, Will there be any complications with public monies going to it? I know federal monies are my monies too, but provincial monies? Those types of things, we do need to know. I've gone on further to say the access to the crown land required, it shouldn't be a thought of selling the land. It should be just at the very most leasing the land, just in case what his hopes for for profitability. If they go sideways, he should not own that land. We should own that land. We lease it to them, say every five years there's a renewal available to the company. But that's, so there's some of my thoughts on the finances.
5: Yeah, I agree with you there. I wanted to uh, uh, mention uh, the water issue that uh, several people have brought up. And I don't know how clear it is, but uh, when you uh, break down uh, H2O, uh and uh to get hydrogen yeah it's one of the byproducts the other is uh oxygen gas which goes up in the air in other words the water that you started with disappears it's no longer there true so th- that that's something that you have to consider it's not like um
1: we spoke with all sides about the water where it is what it's been used for in the past and uh, even in the document presented by the company to the provincial government regarding water, the reservoir that they'll be tapping into, which has long been an industrial or commercial application, there's more water there than they will ever need, and none of it is part of the water table insofar as potable drinking water or fresh water. So this is that. I think that one's pretty clear. It's in their documents. We asked Rosley directly on this program, same thing of the minister. So people do have justifiable concerns about water. Water is now a hot commodity. You know, I hate to put it that way. It's actually being traded on stock markets. So you know, we've we've broached that issue. I think it's an important one. The answer, I think, uh, gives some people in the region comfort, knowing it's not going to be any jeopardize, any jeopardization of any fresh water that people may be drinking. Uh, last one to you, Bruno, before I have to sleep. Well,
5: it's just that unlike uh, for uh, a hydro dam, where you produce energy by running water over the dam, you still have the water at the end of the day. Uh, when you... Uh, turn water into hydrogen gas and oxygen, the water disappears. And so yeah. it's fundamentally different in that way. Uh, the water is gone. You've got hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, and the oxygen gas goes up in the air.
1: Okay. I'm not sure what the point you're making there is, but let's say, for instance, the water wasn't gone, and it just got ended up being pumped out into the ocean. It's still gone. You know, it's no longer, unless we're going through the Tom Cairns desalinization program. So anyway, Bruno, I do have to go. But listen, once again, sincerely, hopefully you guys are able to weather the storm and get away as unscathed as possible. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Uh just before we get to the break, want to say good luck to all the teams participating in the twenty twenty two Eastern Canadian Masters Soccer Championships tonight. Kicks off at six PM Ontario versus Quebec. That's at King George V right here in the city of St. John's. And then Nova Scotia plays our reps, which is Holy Cross. So good luck to Holy Cross, in particular Gold Crusaders. We're taking a break and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two say good morning to Veterans Advocate. That's Woody French on two morning, Woody. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you, sir. Welcome to the show.
6: Good, good. Thanks for getting me on. And I just wanted, first of all, to uh, congratulate the trail of the caribou group um, for their event that they're having today uh, of uh, placing the last caribou, um, as you mentioned in your preamble. And uh, that's quite an accomplishment for this group and uh, certainly a commitment to... uh, to all of our Newfoundland and Labradorians who serve and um, serve our country in the Canadian Armed Forces and, and you know go out and put themselves at risk uh, on a daily basis, so I want to congratulate them on the completion of that project. That's quite a thing, as you mentioned earlier.
1: I think it's terrific. You know, I think it's notable. It's historic. It's it commemorates uh, some serious sacrifice by the men the men in that case in the Newfoundland Regiment. So uh, I think it's great that it got finally got completed.
6: Yeah, and then, uh, you know, the, the other interesting thing that you mentioned that uh, that I hadn't thought about was certainly the fact that there were people, that uh, there are people in Newfoundland and Labrador waiting for this uh, caribou to be placed so that they, they, they can include it in their travel plans. So it certainly shows the dedication that uh, Newfoundland and Labradorians have uh, to the military and, and their efforts. And and that's certainly greatest, greatly appreciated by, you know, by people like myself who have, who've served the country uh, for a number of years and uh, again congratulations and a shout out to them. Here here. The reason for my call this morning Patty is that uh, I'm involved with uh, a committee called the Lab 3 committee and for the people that don't know what I'm talking about it's basically a military vehicle that was used by our troops uh, in Afghanistan and of course you know we've had uh, uh, 11 Newfoundland laboratorians that have paid the supreme sacrifice in that conflict. But um, uh, this is the last vehicle that was made available by Canada Lands uh, to the provinces, and uh, we've got one, and and ours for Newfoundland is going to be set up at the Monument of Honour in Conception Bay South through a kind donation of our local resident, Kathy DeGro, who's former honorary lieutenant colonel uh, for the Royal Newfoundland Regiment, and uh, we're very appreciative of that. And what we need right now is we certainly want... Uh, support and asking uh, through your show uh, for anybody who knows any veterans that have served in Afghanistan to ask them to contact us. We'd love to have them come to the ceremony that's going to occur on October 2nd at 1 o'clock where we're going to commemorate this vehicle to their service. And we're trying to get um, as many veterans as we can there and certainly representatives of the family the families who lost people uh, during that uh, during that conflict. And um, we'd love to have them come, and we want to pay tribute to the people that served and, and the people who didn't return home. And uh, we're hoping that uh, by getting the message out this morning um, that we're going to be able to get people to contact us. And we'd like for them to contact us through Branch 50 of the Royal Canadian Legion here in Conception Bay South and uh, the phone number is 834-2331. And it has a voicemail. So uh, if it's somebody that's calling about this event, just leave a message and, and we will certainly get back to them. And um, as I said earlier, you know, we, it's, we have to remember these things. And um, like you said about the Trail of the Caribou, uh, you know, this is just another step uh, in our commitment to, to uh, the people that served, and to our commitment to them, that uh, we will remember them.
1: what when's the event?
6: It's going to be on October second.
1: Okay.
6: It's going to be at the Monument of Honor in Conception Bay South. It starts at um, at one o'clock, and we're you know we're hoping that especially the veterans will will come out uh, to this, and and especially the veterans uh, from Afghanistan, so we can acknowledge their commitment.
1: What is is the Lap Three the same thing as the Kodiak?
6: It's a similar vehicle, yeah. It, okay, so these are the, personnel carriers. Yeah, and it was, yeah, basically, yeah, and uh, they um, they've gotten uh, they had a bunch of them that uh, that were completed their service, I guess, and uh, they um, they were retiring them, and um, um, we were fortunate enough to get one of them uh, here in the province. And this, the, the good, I'm glad you asked me that because. This is for the whole province. It's not just for uh, Conception Bay. So,
1: hello. Time to get up.
6: Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. No problem. But uh, it's you know it um, it's certainly a, um, a tribute to uh, to them and uh, and to the whole province. So you know we certainly lo- love to see and particularly our veterans and certainly any members of the public that want to come out and and spend an hour or two with us. Uh, it'd be greatly appreciated.
1: I know some Afghan veterans or uh, veterans of the Afghanistan war, so I'll be sure to pass this along to them. So anyone who's interested, please do indeed contact the folks at Branch 50 of the Royal Canadian Legion and uh, go, go through that process. Even if you have to leave a message, someone will get back to you. Always appreciate your time and the effort you put forward to represent the veterans, Woody.
6: Thank you, Patty. Really appreciate it. And uh, a shout-out again to uh, everybody at VOCM that support veterans.
1: Happy to do it. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank Take care. Bye-bye. That's pretty French. Here you go. That sounds like a good event. Uh, let's take a break for the 10 o'clock news. When we come back, you know the deal. Lots of time for you.
4: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to IrishNL at VOCM.com or submit them online at VOCM.com.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Good morning, Derek. You're on the air. Good morning, uh, and thank you so much. Happy to do it. So on my screen, it says Waterford Valley Rotary Club PSA, and I don't know why. My my mind automatically went Harper Valley PTA. <laughs> okay. Man, what a uh, day. Uh, Go ahead. What's uh, on your mind?
0: Actually, actually, what we are doing, uh, this Sunday is uh, World River Day, and we're having an information session down in Boring Park at the gazebo. That's just west of the duck pond.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And... Uh, our club has been involved with the Waterford River for, oh, since the 70s, and I guess Sandy Roach, who has passed, was instrumental in, uh, you know, having the club participate in the preservation of the river, planting thousands of trees along the river, and generally it, it, making everybody aware that there, the river is there is pristine and it should be looked after. And so, you know, the river... It's a fantastic place. It has the Grand Concourse Trail, which uh, goes to the full length. And uh, it's a great walk, a great relaxing walk. And we have, or our club, has been involved with, uh, with the three cities, well, St. John's, Mount Pearl, and Paradise, and also with the Conservation Corps and uh, Choices for Youth uh, to try to Get an, an understanding of what the river does for the community. It's not only just a, a place to walk. It's a place for offload from all these hills and everything. And we all know that water is becoming a problem. It's a lifesaver and it's a life taker if it's not if it's not properly managed. So you know our club, with Sandy's insight over the past, is to to try to get it. Have the communities respect the onflow into the river, and to respect the ecology of the river, so that it's a place for, you know, us as seniors to, uh, for a place to walk for our kids to grow up around and see nature as, as it should be, and you know, with that in mind, we have the conservation corps coming uh, with us on Sunday and our club members and we're going to have a video there on the river that was made a couple of years ago and we'd like to just make people aware of what happens when you don't look after
1: the river absolutely Uh, it's interesting to mention sandy he's a friend of mine
6: hey pardon
1: sandy was a friend of mine great fellow Sandy and I went to school together, actually. Is that right, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. So, you know, uh, and Sandy was a driving force. There's no doubt about it. He, he maintained it and kept it going. When pe- Sandy passed away, um, our club needed someone th- to take over, uh, look, to try to help and, you know, keep the program going. So I decided, being a friend of Sandy, I'd jump in and, and take on that responsibility.
1: Yeah, I would have stayed in his cabin up in it many a time.
0: You know, so anyway. you
1: know, Mayport. Uh, uh, anyway, I was just just pops to mind because I, I, I did know him fairly well, and we did stay at his cabin every now and then. Of course, his—I I won't get into his family relationships with my friends my age, but anyway. So it's at the gazebo in Bowering Park. When did you say it was, Derek?
0: Yeah, that's the one. Uh, if you're at the duck pond, and then you you go west. So we had the uh, little the uh, two, the two uh, i guess uh, bathrooms here and then next to that is the gazebo which is probably just off off the uh, little monument that's there.
1: Okay, sounds great. And you're right, the preservation of the rivers is going to be critically important. We talk about, you know, like the, we had the pretty torrential rain there one day, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, and some of the way that the rivers overflow. What kind of protections are there for the residents in and around Waterford River? Because we saw, like, at Corpus Christi, for instance, the water had covered the road, and it was quite deep, impassable for vehicles. So what goes on on that front to ensure that, you know, whether the some of the blockages of the river may be cleared and, you know, understanding the the difficulties when we get some of those trench rains, or is that something that you folks deal with at all?
0: Well, what we're hoping to do, in the eventually, is have a, a meeting with the federal minister because, you know, right now there, our provincial government and the uh, municipal council have no control over the waterways. That's federal jurisdiction. So, that said, what we have to do, we have to get the federal government to say, listen here, you can't build up on that hill and not leave a tree perimeter in there to absorb some of the water. Sure. To keep, it from, to keep it from barreling down over the hill into Mount Pearl or into the Waterford Valley and destroying the homes of maybe hundreds of people in the future, maybe, maybe even more than that, and causing serious uh, infrastructure difficulties. So, you know, uh, we take the river for granted. It flows. We can fish there. We can swim there right now. But in five years' time, are we going to be able to do the same thing? How much land is this? Water, are these waterways going to take from the people in the future? And it's not only the Waterford River; it's every river on the island. So I throw out a challenge on behalf of the Rotary Club of Waterford Valley for every Rotary Club across the island to adapt, adopt the river, and try to make a change.
1: Excellent challenge. Hopefully your fellow Rotarians take you up on it. Uh, thanks for making time for the show this morning, Derek.
0: I thank you so much. Ta- Have a great weekend. You
1: too. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. There you go. That's a worthwhile initiative, to say the very least. Let's go. Line number two. Say good morning to the CEO at the Port of Argentia. That's Scott Penny. Oh, Wrong clicker. Good morning, Scott. You're on the air.
7: Hi, good morning, Patty. Thank you. Good to talk to you, and thanks for the invitation and your
8: interest.
1: Happy to have you on. Look, whenever we talk enough about things that are going sideways or backwards, but there's lots of positivity, lots of momentum. Certainly, at the part of our agenda, and you've got some more good news to share.
7: Yes. So uh, you're right. There's a lot of there's a lot of things in the world that go sideways, and some things go very straight, very uh, very productive and positive. And uh, on Wednesday. We uh, announced a joint venture with Torrent Capital, with uh, a uh, Newfoundlander Wade Dyer and his, his business. And so we've uh, we formed a joint venture. And the, the main driving factor of why we want to form that entity is we've seen a significant demand on the port in large industrial players is, is quite well documented. And in order to keep up with the pace, uh, we, needed, uh, we needed some backing and investment. And uh, for the last... 15 to 18 months myself and my team and the board of directors along with Torrent Capital and their teams we've been trying to hammer a deal and about a week ago we uh, we finalized it and completely got finalized over last weekend
1: and we we're able to make the announcement Wednesday morning so it's a,
7: it's an exciting time and it certainly is a win-win for everybody.
1: What's the focus of this new joint venture going to be?
7: It's really about port infrastructure investment. You know, if you think about it, the, the port has been there for, you know, 70-plus years. A lot of the infrastructure is aging, and there is there has been upgrades. And, and the board uh, of the day and even prior to my arrival have done a tremendous job in, in maintaining its investment and, and with maintenance programs um, and being proactive. They've done a great job. Now it's about, okay, how do we, we have some major, major international companies coming to our agenda some of which we've talked about in the past, um, Paddy. Now it's about how do we get a, an equity stake, how do we help them execute and make Argentia a more attractive port for them to set up and establish their entities. And so I think what this will do is allow us to move at a... What I always say, you know, sometimes you're, you're bound or you're constrained by the, the speed of government or your ability to invest in projects. Uh, we need it to be and maintain a pace with business, and in industry, and uh, couldn't wait on on government.
1: So which industries would you be focusing on the new the, the infrastructure planning to build for? Is this the oil and gas sector or is it for aquaculture? What's it about?
7: Well, yeah, there, there's an opportunity that you know we've been chasing for a long while. And Argentina is a great location for aquaculture. So you know, any services that de- supplies or infrastructure that they would require, we'd, we'd be certainly looking to be able to invest now. If you take the, the pattern energy deal, our, our onshore wind project and exporting of hydrogen, you take that, now the poor can sit to the table and probably take an equity stake, whereas before Wednesday, we could not. So it really changes our dynamic, increases our, it will increase our revenues, it will increase employment opportunities for sure. There's some several major mega-projects happening right now in Argentina. You take our pattern wind, our pattern energy, uh, that project, you've got Husky Sonovas that's firing back up, you've got our uh, U.S. offshore wind monopile project. So, you know, the, the spectrum is is long and what tremendous opportunity and really what we want to be able to do is sit to the table with big industry uh, and say we are here we want to be able to assist but we also want to be able to get a fair share and get a stake in your projects and drive investment to support what you're trying to accomplish in our problems.
1: Where are we? What's the status of the pattern energy proposal?
7: Well, that is. uh, There's consultation going on now. I know Pattern. Uh, I attended a a meeting, a briefing on um, Tuesday evening with the the council in Placentia. I know they've got a. There's discussions today ongoing that will happen with our board uh, as an update, as a timeline. But there will certainly be um, consultations with the local community and stakeholders. Um, Again, one of these, one of the key advantages why we why we selected to partner with Pattern. It's very simple. They've got a track record of community engagement, working with local stakeholders. It, it, it's a, it's a, they're very positive, very encouraging in how they deal with the community. And so we want to we wanna make sure that we're doing all of the things right so we're not at a pace of uh, at lightning pace, but we're at a pace at which the project can, can continue to move forward and be very positive, be very engaging, which is very important to the entire community, and and at the end of the day, produce results.
1: I don't know if this question is on point, but I'm going to go for it anyway. You know, the opportunities in this country and in this province for the processing, or I guess the mining and the processing of critical minerals. You know, we're the only democratic country on the face of the earth that has all the components in country for our own domestic supply chain regarding electric vehicle batteries or what have you. Is the role for the port on that front?
7: 100%. Oh, 100%. good. We've had, we've had <laughs> discussions on that. Yep, we've, we've had discussions uh, with uh, multiple entities to be uh, to be honest with you and they'll continue on and they, again it goes back to you know we that's why this venture is so critical because now when they when proponents typically come in and say well we need a you know a hundred million dollar worth right it, it's it's out of our hospice so then what happens you get into a situation where these companies have to invest their capital dollars into Latin um, uh, assets But that's not their core business. Their core business is mining critical minerals. So this will allow us now to be able to be extremely attractive to those entities, which ultimately will drive investment in this province and create jobs.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about global supply chain stuff, what it means for inflation, what have you. But for far too long, a lot of the country, and certainly a lot of the industry in this province, we produce it and then we export it so that someone else can add value and send it back to us. It's just something we've got to get ahead of. We've got to figure out a way to be, because I know not everything that we produce requires secondary or tertiary processing, but we need to do more.
7: Absolutely. And so, and again, if if you look at pattern energy, uh, and their project we will do the produ- we will do the production we will we will be putting out uh, a, a likelihood to a, you know a tree is cut and before you know it there's a there's a piece of furniture that's made same concept when we export out of our port as ammonia and or hydrogen that goes to Europe it's done right so those jobs that employment opportunity that will be there similarly you know I, you know with the uh, US offshore wind monopile project that we have going that's moving along but again, same thing. There will be support services requirement, whether it be welding, touch-up for painting, um, inspection. All of those elements, Patty, we can contribute to it. And I think the province is on the cutting edge. And I know the Port of Argentia, under the boards, hospice, and mine, is that we want to be the leading, on the leading edge of creating that extra additional value. Because you're right, secondary value where it's still in terms of the long-term investment sustainability for the entire province.
1: Uh, Last one before I let you go. So between this new joint venture company and all the other things that are in the pipeline, are we talking about investment in the Port of Argentia? Millions, hundreds of millions, billions? What are we talking about?
7: Good question. Good question. Um, If you think about the pattern energy, that's in excess of $4 U.S. dollars. Right, to put it in perspective. That's only phase one. Uh, if you think about, you know, the US offshore wind market, I and mean, that's a you know, pretty much you can call us because I think there's gonna be more come behind that, that's gonna be in excess of hundred million dollars. So all of these projects, they need infrastructure. So as we continue down this path and more and more because what's happening now, Patty, is more and more industry worldwide are taking notice of the port of Argentina. And so they are reaching out to us and saying, How do we get to your port? Because don't forget, back about a month ago when we talked about the US offshore wind play, there's nowhere else on that eastern seaboard that has the landmass that we do. So our ability to attract and invest in the port is what's gonna drive those industries and, and continue to you know grow and increase demand for for our province and for
1: our port. This is probably a little bit tangential, but is it a good thing or a bad thing or a worrisome thing? When people think about the port of Argentia, it's where, where Marine Atlantic stops, not the other big things you have going. Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
7: That's a great thing. I mean the port of Argentia, look, who knows what's going to change and you know, as this port develops, and I can tell you the the plan and the vision for what we see, and this is and again, this is not a proposal. Right? We're not, you know, if you think about it, these are contracts in hand, right? This is significant. What you're going to see is probably in the years to come, the, the marine Atlantic footprint in Argentina will probably increase because it'll have no choice. You know, we're going to, the labor force is going to be extremely pressured, you know, to develop in Argentina and the province as a whole. I mean, if you take Central, you look at the Marathon Gold piece. I mean, the demand for labor and skilled labor and trades is going to be off the charts in this province. And I predict it maybe is less than two to three years maximum. So there will have to be an ability for, you know, for uh, employees or, or craft or crew to come, in, come and go. Supplies, you know, it, it's I, from my perspective, I think it's only going to grow bigger. And I'd welcome that. And I welcome investment in Marine Atlantic because it is a critical pathway to our, to our province and to the rest of the country. And I've said it many, many times, they're a very valuable um, partner. And whether or not, you know, there's an opportunity for them in terms of some of the other things, who knows, we could be supplying hydrogen to fuel those vessels. So the opportunity, and the, I believe a very strong tenant, very positive, is Marine Atlantic. And hopefully, as I said, who knows? Maybe we'll run a manifold down to the Marine Atlantic Terminal, and we'll hook up and be exporting hydrogen and, and making money from that. So it's, it's a win-win, Paddy. It's a great, great new story.
1: Uh, congratulations, Scott, and good luck.
7: Thank you very much for your interest. Appreciate take the
1: care. time. Take care. Bye bye. As the CEO at the Port of Argentia, Scott Penny, there are good things brewing. There just are. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to keep the mining conversation going with the member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good to the NDP member. NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Hi, Jordan. You're on the air. Hi, Jordan.
4: Hey. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show good yourself how's everything
1: i'm doing okay today thanks for asking how about you
4: oh excellent it's a good day and uh you know the, the weather out here is a bit uh bit windy but i you know we're, we're first day of fall so you know it's, uh, it's getting exciting now because this is uh it's gonna be uh, a Kane's quest winter so we're all we're all good now when the snow comes
1: <laughs> right on yeah Kane's quest will be back that's good news
4: yeah so i just want to call and uh, talk about because uh, my next just uh just finished up uh, this uh, past week and actually it was a uh, very great opportunity here uh, in Labrador West to have all the, the miners, the prospectors, the junior miners, and all that, and uh, and the uh, and the government's uh, geological survey come up and actually discuss uh, you know the mining opportunities in Labrador, and uh, it's a very bright future for uh, for Labrador it seems, especially when uh, when we're talking about the European uh, minerals market. <laughs>
1: So there was a couple of initial concerns. You probably don't have anything to do with this. Where the conference was held, people would like to get back into the rec centre, but it's close to the public, was reopened for this. How'd that happen?
4: Yeah, so um, I, every year the, the conference goes back and forth between Laver City and Wabush. So um, like the, where the town of Wabush was this year's host, um, they uh, they po- allowed the centre to be open for, uh, for the like, use of the gym space for uh, presenters for the uh, for the uh, trade show side of things, which, you know, uh, you know, you know, it, it doesn't look good in that, but, uh, you know, the two towns are having discussions about the future of recreation in Labrador West. So there is, there is ongoing talks on how recreation will look in the future of Labrador West, but at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't look good. And I, and I agree with the, the residents on that one. It, it You know, it is not a good look for, uh,
3: to have that happen.
1: Fair enough. So, I mean, people will be bullish on the mining sector for a, a lot of really justifiable reasons. But what are people focusing in on, whether it be at the conference or Prospects for the Future? Because there's a couple of double-edged swords here. And I had this conversation with, I can't remember even, can't remember who it was, because it's one thing to have the sort of cyclical boom bust that Lab West is famous for, and you might have expansion of mines or new mines. But then how do you factor in all the other moving parts, notably housing?
4: Yeah, absolutely, and that's a bigger conversation that we do need to have with the mining industry as well as government. Is like, what would housing look like? How how do we move forward on that? Because you know, to build housing in in, in Labrador is not cheap just to start with, right? And then you add on all the uh, factors of you know inflation and you know the markets right now and coming out of COVID and the cost of building materials, it, it does have a huge down pressure on on, the, on people. Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, if you're going to, if we're going to talk about expansions and stuff like that. The mining companies need to come to the table with the two communities and and, and government and everyone else to actually have like, what is our plan? How are we going to house people in this region? Because it's not just people who work in the mines. We actually, we, like right now, there's not enough people in Labrador West to run Labrador West. So we don't have enough people in the service industry, in healthcare, and everything else we need in in a society. We just don't have enough bodies here. To actually do all the work. And I mean, but I mean all the work. I mean from mining to service to everything. So it is a big conversation we have to have on what will Lab City and Walwich look like in an expanded mining market?
1: Because you need them to happen concurrently. You just can't have one without the other.
4: Oh, absolutely. And right now, so like you said, we take a look at. How all expansion and the idea of expansion. So we have Takora, um, who's at this conference, actually talked about a byproduct from their mining process that is actually extremely desirable right now in the battery manufacturing process, which is manganese. Right now, uh, for <laughs> well, before Takora um, took over, um, I remember working in the mine as a contractor and hearing the guys talk about the manganese and how it's a nuisance and. Basically, they just disposed of it. And now, in the world of EV, that's a desirable mineral. So that is an opportunity that we didn't realize we had at the time. So this is one, one aspect of expansion and actually expanding what we mine here in Labrador West. And that actually creates a huge pile of opportunity and a whole new skill set of people to come to the region. Do the companies talk about,
1: and this is something I just broached with Scott Penny from the Port of Argentia, We know there's a lot of upside to ensuring that value-added gets done in this country. And I was not shocked but a little bit surprised to read that the only democratic country on the face of the earth with all of the critical minerals required for EV batteries in particular, we have them all in Canada. Have them all, and much of it right there in Labrador, even though when they talk about that, they talk about Northern Quebec and Northern Ontario, but Labrador is certainly part of the conversation. Was there any discussion surrounding not just extracting the minerals, but processing the minerals? Because it frustrates so many people that we take something out of the ground or out of the water here, we send it elsewhere, they send it back to us after they made some money by adding value.
4: Actually, it's very interesting that you brought that up, Patty, because um, there was a a bit of discussion about it. So like with the manganese, they're... uh, talked about a, a plant to, uh, to, uh, to bring it to a, uh, an alloy ingot, which would be a, before you take it and actually turn it into – like to add it to a battery. So they did talk about that. Um, an interesting um, presentation actually from search, the CEO of Search Minerals um, down in Southern Labrador talked about that he will not send out concentrate. He, will, he wants to that, uh, process it into a uh, – like a – like before – like a mineral – like an like a ingot before he ships it out of this province – so, you know, this is actually, you know, talking about a processing that to a point where we're not just shipping a concentrate and just that we're setting out alloys and metals out to be turned into items. So it is a good thing that we're actually talking about uh, secondary and tertiary processing in this province, but not even in this province, in Labrador, which is actually, a, you know, a fascinating thing for us that we can actually move forward.
1: Uh, last one before I let you go, and I don't know if you have the answer to this one, Jordan. It just popped in my mind. When... Valet, we were building in Long Harbor, the smelter. They were sending nickel to either Thompson, Manitoba, or Sudbury, Ontario. But the deal was for every nickel or every spoonful sent that way would come back this way. Do you know where we are on the status of that?
4: I'm not sure on the status of that, but from my, my understanding of it, because Valet did not present at this conference, unfortunately, which I, would have been nice to have them there as well. Um, but from my understanding of it, is that they're still, uh, you know, that... There, most of it is gets shipped to uh, to Long Harbour at this point, but there's also opportunity actually in the in Boise to actually set more minerals and actually do more mining. So there was uh, other uh, presenters that are still out there looking for nickel in that area. So you know we're actually uh, we're probably going to be even larger supplier of nickel in the world if you know everything that we all see and want is is complete in Labrador. So we're actually poised right now as Labrador to be one of the largest uh, green. Uh, the shippers of minerals to the european market uh we actually uh actually another thing uh, well, i want to do mention patty before i we do go um that one of the big things that did come out of the conference was the more need for hydroelectricity or, or, or a green electricity i should say uh in labrador because all these projects and everything's talked about there's not enough power in this province right now to support these projects so we're actually going to see a um, a larger increase in manufacturing and mining but at the same time, because we're um, a leader in green electricity, the European market actually sees Labrador and Newfoundland as the most desirable place to purchase minerals from under their new environmental regulations.
1: And the United States with their deal, too. Much friendlier language from the Biden proposal than currently, or pardon me, that prior language sounded like we would have been left out of a lot of stuff, like some subsidies and tax breaks regarding EVs and the like. Okay, so there's big opportunities, but you mentioned power, so what does that mean? Where does the power come from? Because here we are rebuilding a diesel generator that burned down in Charlottetown, and then you're saying hydro, so
4: is that talking about Gull Island or something? No, not from that necessarily, but like Hydro, Newfoundland Lab or Hydro as a company. Um, I was talking, like we said, we, they were a presenter as well, um, talking about that right now uh, in accordance with the EU's regulations for importing minerals. Um, we are a majority of green, besides, you know, a majority of our power that mo- supplies mining industry right now comes from hydroelectricity and, or other green sources. So therefore we would actually be a preferred vendor for minerals see. into, into the, uh, into the European market. But obviously if all these mines and every project expand, we're going to require more electricity. That's why I remember for many years, you've heard of me and other people talk about the third line in Collabra West, yeah, which is Right. So we're, we're back to that conversation. We need the third, we need the third line again, Patty. Yeah. I, if
1: I remember correctly, that was uh, like $325 million required for that bit of transmission. I can't remember the name of that company. It uh, begins with uh, nay. Alderaan. Alderaan, Alderaan. Yeah.
4: Exactly. Yeah, we're actually kind of back to that conversation again about a third line and the required need for electricity in the Labrador West uh, because the future is very bright. Um, it's bright because uh, we have a, a, a desirable products here in Labrador when it comes to minerals. The European Union has very high standards for importing minerals right now into the into their market. And we're the ones, they're coming to us right now, Patty, which is a great thing. So the future is very bright for mining. And it's because, you know, well, we do it, you know, uh, environmentally friendly. We do it in a way that, you know, satisfies the European market, which is, you know, the strictest market probably uh, on the planet right now. So we're in a very good place. And I think that coming out of that conference uh, with all the presenters that we... Uh, we're probably going to be leading the pack above Ontario and Quebec.
1: Yeah, and there are environmental sensitivities. Nothing is pure in this world, but it's a comparative issue when we talk about how yeah. extraction takes place, how it's powered, uh, human rights, safety, all of those things. That's the that's the reference just before someone jumps down my throat. Uh, Jordan, appreciate the time. Have a nice weekend. Thank
4: you. Take care. I'm
1: Paddy. Bye-bye. Too. Bye-bye. It's Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be speaking with the VP of Public Engagement from the Canadian Women's Foundation. That's Andrea Gunraj. Don't go away.
4: Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather and more. Join us on your VOCM
1: at noon. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number four. and Say good morning to the Vice President of Public Engagement at the Canadian Women's Foundation. That's Andrea Gunraj. Good morning, Andrea. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show.
9: Thank you for having me.
1: Happy to have you on the program. What's on your mind?
9: Well, you know, I think that uh, many of us may or may not know it's Gender Equality Week in Canada right now. And I think it's important for us to recognize The ways that we have to go with gender equality, uh, a lot of people think of Canada as a very inherently fair place where uh, women do well. And in many senses, yes, and in other senses, no. We've seen particularly in the pandemic context that uh, 30 years of gender equality gains in Canada have been shaken. Um, Right now, we are going through a period where we see some improvement in women's labor force participation, but we're finding a couple of things that uh, is pretty concerning. We're seeing that, uh, you know, women's part-time work exceeds pre-COVID levels. Uh, Women with young children are the ones with the lowest participation in the labor force. Um, and we've also found that employment has fallen for young women aged 15 to 24. And on top of that, women's wages are not keeping pace with inflation. That's one sense that we're having an issue with. And we've always had um, a really significant gender pay gap. The pay gaps are worse for women with disabilities, for racialized women. You know, it's pay gaps, I would say, plural. And then we also see that there's a rising rate of gender-based violence in Canada, particular femicides and sexual assaults. So these are kind of key areas that we need to really address in Canada right now to make sure that our gender equality and gains are not totally lost in this pandemic context and as we're looking forward to a just recovery.
1: There was a big conversation about the numbers of job vacancies and wages that are not keeping up with the consumer price index or inflation or what have you, which I think is an across-the-board thing. But let's stick with the pay gap between men and women here. The argument that you'll hear repeatedly is that the pay gap comes down to a couple of important factors. One being, and this is is just for the purpose of conversation, Andrea, people will say, well, women work in industries that are predominantly underpaid regardless of the fact that women or men, for instance, whether it be in hospitality or retail, where we know it's notoriously low pay. So how do you push back against that age-old argument?
9: Well, you know, there's a sense in which that is true, absolutely. Women tend to be in underpaid, underprotected industries. And we call this the feminized sector because women predominate in these jobs. And I think there's a couple of things that we have to recognize. These jobs tend to be care work jobs. They tend to be focused on taking care of children, of people with disabilities, of elders. They can be things like taking care of a community, retail and frontline work. These are jobs that, especially in the pandemic context, we recognized as essential. And we understood and seemed to applaud them as so important to our well-being just day to day. There's not one of us who goes through a day without a woman taking care of us in some way, shape, or form. And I think that it's important for us to recognize then that we have traditionally underpaid these important, essential jobs. That's the issue I need to look at. I think it's really important for us to remember that it's about big changes, systemic changes, and not just about people's individual choices, that we have to look at where the root causes are. And I do believe one of the root causes we've undervalued and underprotected women's work.
1: In your opinion, how do we talk about equality and make a differential or heighten the importance of not only equality but equity?
9: Well, well, that's such a great question. I mean, I think it's important for us to recognize that women are are not all one big group. There's lots of differences between women and people of all genders, I think, um, have this this reality of being multifaceted people. So you could be a woman, you could be a woman with a disability, you could be somebody who's racialized, you could be somebody from the 2SLGBTQI community, Uh, you can be different ages and you experience different things. Uh, really when it comes to who you are, I think uh, the gender pay gap is a great example of how different women experience it differently. Gender is one of the issues, yes. But then you look at the gender pay gap when it comes to women with disabilities, it's so much worse. Women who are Indigenous, racialized women, newcomer women tend to have the highest gender pay gap that they're dealing with, particularly as well, younger women tend to have really high gender pay gaps. Women uh, with young children, young dependents have the biggest opportunity gap in some ways. So I think it's important for us to recognize those nuances and see where different women are experiencing different things and then tailoring the solutions with that sense in mind that women are such a multifaceted group.
1: Yeah, what you need to succeed might not be what my wife needs to succeed. So when we lump it all into the just the simply the umbrella of equality, those broad strokes probably miss an awful lot of people who need something different than me or you or my wife or my sister.
9: That's beautifully said. I think you're so right. And I think it's important for us to recognize that these things do intersect, right? Um, people may experience uh, disability or not disability, from um, uh, discrimination. They might experience uh, lack of opportunities not just because of their gender, but also because of their gender and their race and their ability and their age, all these things combined. So when we look at the solutions, they do become more complicated, but the solutions being more nuanced actually creates a better outcomes. And that's the goal, ultimately. We want to see being changed we don't want to just talk about the problem
1: and that's where you know you take the approach on the small scale focus on the individual versus the gender as a full uh, full component of society because then we just miss so much and i think that stands to be true w- with just about every public policy uh last one before i let you go this morning andrea you mentioned violence against women there's a problem in this province there's a problem in this country there's a problem in this world the difficulty becomes how do you talk about it because as a man and the father of two uh, two young men we talk about it through the lens of self-respect respect for everyone in the community and understanding what it means and the different needs and wants of women in particular girls as they grow up you know how to speak to how to treat how to think about But that doesn't seem to have made the appreciable difference required. We focus in on, like, emergency shelters and helping people navigate the justice system. How do we talk about it to see a reduction in these incidents? Because that becomes the trick, which I don't think I've ever heard anyone tell me how to think about it, how to talk about it, how we can make a difference.
9: That's a great question. Thanks for asking that. You know, I think as a parent, it's really important for you to have these conversations with your young children of all genders. I think it's great to actually ask them what they think. What do they see? What are they concerned about? What questions do they have? They can actually speak to you about those things from their perspective and go from there, just broad strokes. But then I also think there's limitations to what a parent can do. I think it's important for us to recognize that healthy relationship education, uh, consent education, is actually not consistent across the country. It can be different school to school and and district to district. So we have to actually fund these programs that are community-based. I also think sometimes learning in a classroom is really different than what you learn in a peer-to-peer space for instance and we need these spaces that have to be community run that's the kind of work that the Canadian Women's Foundation funds healthy relationship education that can happen in a peer-to-peer community context this is where young people actually get the conversations and get the problem solved, what it means to have a healthy relationship to recognize the signs of abuse to recognize what consent really is a lot of people don't actually know adults don't actually know what consent is and isn't so I think that us being able to support these programs actually voting and uh, giving our money and our time and our talent our treasure to these programs in our local community goes a super long way where we perhaps can't do it with young people that are in our family we can certainly have the spaces for them to do it with each other and learn from experts and mentors who know to talk to young people particularly young people that don't have a family relationship and need a space to just be honest with each other about it
1: yeah and saying no is different than saying yes and we've got to stop minimizing how people are, are told so frequently you're in a dangerous situation in the home just leave it's just not that simple we got to stop doing that it could be anything as fundamental as the pet or money or safety or fair retribution if you do leave i mean there's so many different things to it people say just get out of a dangerous situation if it was that easy then we wouldn't have any of these domestic violence incidents to the numbers that we see in the country it's been a pleasure to have you on the show andrew thanks for your time
9: Thanks for having me.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Andrew Gunraj, the VP of Public Engagement for the Canadian Women's Foundation. Let's take a break. When we come back, still plenty of show left on this Friday to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go. Line number two. Mike, you're on the air.
10: Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Patty, go back a few years ago. There was this contract between a company and Eastern Health. It's the 11th biggest company in the world, making billions of dollars. They could buy and sell nuclear land and they're taking control of our healthcare services net. And, and they're running the show to the detriment of the province free enterprise and everything else that, like I said, our forefathers fought for and everything else to get that we don't have one Lord and Master that is gonna rule us. And right now, uh, this latest contract is still costing us uh, multi-millions of dollars a year that we can't afford. But in the contract, there's nothing about money. They have the amounts paid to them blackened out. All they can get is the uh, expenditures, which totals $71,872,000. So all this money is being spent, but now I find out that the labour is not included into this, what they're charging for 45 people uh the wages and everything. Also, they don't know all the companies that comes under this company's umbrella. Like they have over a hundred companies apparently in Canada. So on this, they're buying the film from their own companies. That looks like they're separate companies, which they are in identity. But they actually the profits all goes to the same one. So they're taking away the competition by buying. They've got the power in in Eastern Health now to take away the tendering process and that and everything else. Everything that we got the rules and regulations for, they're taking it under under. You know, taking it away. Like the chief procurement officer, she won't do anything about it. She won't have anything to do with them. Apparently, she figures that they're separate or whatever. But in the terms of the contract, it clearly states that dare to follow all of the Public Procurement Act, the public procurement regulations, public procurement policy, and commitment authority. It's all listed there, what they're supposed to follow. But the chief procurement uh, chief, officer won't, they're not doing anything about it. Nobody is looking into it. Now, as you know, on the previous contract, when I brought it up to everybody, Uh, Finance Department, uh, Justice Department, everybody, private industry, everybody, uh, everybody agrees that it was a bad contract. Now we've got a bad contract again, one that is cementing them into our into our government. That we're going to do, uh, basically, we got to pay them whatever they want. There's no competition. So uh, through all of this you know, we're taking away free enterprises, we're taking away the rights of other contractors, other companies who want to bid for this work, or uh, tender it, or whatever. And it's just a total mess. And, like, uh, there's... I don't know how how to describe it, really, but, like, one of the expenditures there, apparently they're exempt from paying HST. Now, they can make HST exempt from them, they can make it ex- exempt from every... Every contractor around, you know, uh, to me, they don't have the right to give it to one person, not to everybody else. And, uh, you know, why are they paying over a million dollars as an expenditure for paying HST to the government Uh, in expenditure? There's a lot of things here that don't make sense and can't figure out the reasons why. And also, too, I asked for uh, copies of how much money was spent to their uh, other companies. And they don't even know who, or the uh, ATIP people with Eastern Health, don't even know how many companies that they got or who they're dealing with. So they don't know that they're buying and selling from their own companies only. And this practice, as far as I'm concerned, should be stopped. Should I stop now? But when Tom Osborne in there, was in there before Hagee, he wouldn't do anything about about this contract before. And I doubt very much if he's going to do anything about it now. We haven't responded to anything anyway. And as you've seen by the emails uh, I sent you, have you read them? I did. Things are bad. You know, it's, it's it needs a complete investigation, a thorough investigation. So, Mike,
1: I appreciate the digging that you do on this one. Uh, you're relentless on it, but I suppose when we need someone out there keeping an eye on these types of things because they don't hit the front burner, right? When people think healthcare, they think about access to healthcare. They don't think about healthcare contracts. But I'm, I really appreciate you sending all the information that you do along to me. Uh, and thanks for your time this morning. We're off to the news. All
6: right, thank you.
1: Thanks, Mike. Bye bye. Uh, okay, how are we doing out there, David? Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, still another hour to speak with you. Don't go away.
4: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the executive director at the Ocean Startup Project. That's Don Grant. Good morning, Don. You're on the air.
11: Hey, Patty. Good, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Really, really excited to be here.
1: So, tell us about what's going on. The headline in the Gazette is 20 research teams are getting a crash course on all things ocean this fall. What's happening?
11: Yeah, that's our Lab to Market Oceans program, which is run out of Memorial University. And that is an opportunity for us to try and get some of this great research that's happening in these universities across Canada out of that lab and into the market we want to see more commercialization of that research we want to see it for newfoundland we want to see it across this country and so we have 20 teams of really really bright researchers with their pis and with mentors teaming up to try and figure out whether or not this research has commercial value and commercial legs and then we want to see those teams really start to become companies or Figure out their, their research isn't ready for commercial use yet, go back, pivot, do some uh, more market validation, and then come back out with a, with a different idea. So we're trying to see more entrepreneurial uh, DNA in, in these universities across Canada, and, and Memorial is really leading uh, on this front.
1: Yeah, I mean, the relationship, the hand in glove between the Genesis Center and the Center for Entrepreneurship is so critically important. Before we get to monetization, because Canada has a reputation of being really good at research, pretty good at development, but terrible at monetization. So let's get to that in a second. First, part of the interesting uh, part of the article I read was just having a better understanding. It's remarkable. We live on an island. We have researchers for centuries looking at the oceans, but we know so little. How important is it to have a real firm understanding of the opportunities before we try to monetize
11: something? Well, I think they go hand in hand. I think okay. I think when you when you think about the ocean, eighty percent of the ocean right now is still unexplored, undiscovered. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of learning to do. But I don't think the learning needs to be uh mutually exclusive from that commercialization component so I think the learning can become commercialization and I think I think it is this evolution that we're going through and I think we're realizing that a lot of this really incredible research that people in Memorial and the Marine Institute and other institutions across this country are doing sometimes gets shelved or sometimes doesn't see the light of day but could have an incredibly, impactful uh, opportunity for for both the planet, but also economic development uh, across this country. And that's, that's what we want to really start to spur a little bit more, a little bit more of that entrepreneurial spirit.
1: Yeah, we're uniquely positioned. Obviously, we talk about research going to the gateway to the north, for instance. Can you give us an example of some of the research teams, their are focus areas and opportunities for monetization?
11: Yeah, we've got a we've got a lot of really interesting ones and a lot of interesting companies coming out of of Newfoundland as well. There's one team that's uh, headed up by a researcher it's not in our lab to market program right now, but it's it's a company called Qualities, and they're doing corrosion inspection and management for companies. And and that's really relevant to uh, to Newfoundland because of obviously the offshore oil and gas sector and corrosion is a huge issue, but it's a huge issue globally as well. And and so we're really, really excited about that company and, and what they're doing. And it's headed up by a a a former, well, a person with a PhD who came out of uh, came out of that lab, so that's one company that we're really, really excited about. And and then there's a another group. Uh, there's three younger uh, entrepreneurs that we're working with uh, in a company called CoreSphere. And these are three folks who have been at Memorial University. They have. They have tried to do this while they're going to school, they're building this company, and what they're doing is they're doing industrial asset maintenance for and tracking software for, for shipping companies. And so they are having a huge amount of success. They have found a market out of the university, they have found a market, and they are uh, in revenue at a very, very early stage in their evolution. They've only been around for about a year and a half but this is what's happening in Newfoundland, Patty. This is what is possible in this, in this province. And, and it's, it's about just trying to see that entrepreneurial uh, mindset uh, across, the, across the province.
1: That was actually what I was going to ask about, whether or not we're looking in the ocean or on the ocean. Because whether it be safety or, for instance, like this graphene-based paint for more economic... Uh, operations of your vessels or what have you so there's just so much to it the difference between understanding what's going on in the ocean versus what's going on on the ocean whether it be safety in an offshore rig or paint on the hull of a marine vessel are there different opportunities and different research teams that will split that hair because there's vast differences in understanding what's going on in the mariana trench versus what's going on with the cargo vessel
11: yeah no i think that's i think that's entirely correct and i i think they're I think there is a vast array of sectors and verticals, obviously, in the ocean sector. When you think of the fact that the ocean covers so much of this planet, there are so many different areas that you can go in. And the challenge I think we have in places like Newfoundland, Atlantic Canada and Canada generally is it's that it's that boiling the ocean uh, concept. And and so What we see really, Patty, is there's a huge movement towards sustainable technologies, things that are going to help this planet and these oceans that are so critical to the life of all of us on this planet. There's what we're seeing is there's just so much opportunity on that sustainability side, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's uh, robotics, that is the underlying theme that we're really seeing Canada and and Newfoundland, to a, a a larger degree, take advantage of and and seeing you can have an impact and generate really good revenue in the ocean sector.
1: How important is it to build on the momentum we have? You mentioned robotics, so companies say, for instance, like Kraken, and then we have all the software companies, the Verifins and the collabs of the world. But there's now a more, I think, a heightened focus on companies that began here and the big things are doing and the big deals are striking because it seems to me the iron is hot. So this is the time.
11: I couldn't agree more, Patty. and you probably stole one of my lines there because that that's exactly what I say uh, consistently. And we've been at this at the Ocean Startup Project for about three years now, close to three years. And when we started in January of 2020, it was a slow-moving process. Uh, ball that we were rolling now we're trying to catch up to that ball we're seeing so much momentum and it's because of companies like a kraken like a rudder that you have there, mm-hmm. like what chad call it at subsea imaging is doing out of clarenville newfoundland what we're seeing is you can build a really strong ocean company in newfoundland you can build it in st john's you can build it in clarenville you don't have to be in You don't have to be in Silicon Valley to do this what you have access to is what everybody else has access to which is a global market and you have to think big and you have to think global and and I would encourage anybody who's thinking about getting into this area to have a look at what Chad Collett has done in Clarenville Newfoundland he is a prime example of a really strong entrepreneur who has found global markets is a global leader in his field and is having huge, huge success. And and Rudder's the same, Kraken's the same. These companies that I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, so Qualities, CoreSphere, OceanSet, these are companies that are, are recognizing that there is this global opportunity, and now is the time to take advantage of it. And what I'd love to see is us pushing this into some of our rural communities in Newfoundland and, and all parts of Canada, because what Chad's done demonstrates you don't need to be in these big centers to do this, you can do this from anywhere. And when I think about the inherent knowledge that exists in our rural communities about the ocean, this is the time to take advantage of that. These people have grown up, they understand the ocean better than anyone. And some of that next generation may not want to go into that traditional industry but know so much about the traditional industry and know how to innovate within that industry and will be able to get that market validation, but also the acceptance of the technology because they come from these communities, they come from the fishing communities and they understand it. So there's this massive opportunity in rural communities as well as St. John's and Cornerbrook and Halifax and Victoria, um, but now is certainly the time for us to take advantage of it and just keep that momentum going.
1: Yeah, you don't need to be in Silicon Valley or in Singapore. You can be in Bergio. You just can. And We've got to wrap our mind around that. You know, build on the decades of good work done at SeaCor, Shine a brighter spotlight on the Marine Institute and the, the companies all over the world clamoring for time in their simulators and what have you. You know, here we are on an island. We don't talk enough about it. We talk about the rackets in the fishery and all that kind of stuff, when in fact there's big economic opportunity outside the you Traditional industries with the reason why we're here we don't turn our back on it but we grow it and there's lots of money out there for this kind of stuff too isn't there
11: Don? Yeah there sure is and, and we at the Ocean Startup Project are certainly interested in working those early stage entrepreneurs when you think about Canada's Ocean Supercluster and what they've done over the last five years investing over 300 million dollars across this country in the ocean sector they've just been renewed for another five years which tells Everybody who's thinking about doing something in the ocean, there is a focus. We are becoming an ocean nation in in, in this country, and there's another five years of funding coming to the Canada's Ocean Supercluster. But I want to just jump on something else you said, Patty, because you know the Marine Institute is such a strong organization. Memorial University, Genesis, you've got NLWIC. You've got Kieran Hanley at EcoNext who is just so active and engaged in trying to help the transition to net zero, and that's a huge part of this ocean industry. You've got Kathy Hogan, Sharon It's There's so many great leaders. In your provincial government, you've got people like Steve Butler and Jennifer Penny who are focused in on the oceans. You've got ACOA who's doing that. There is so much energy and, to your point, funding that is available to really take advantage of this at this moment. And then when you think about what Memorial uh, what Memorial and the Marine Institute are doing at the launch in Holyrood, that's going to be a world-class hub for ocean innovation. And And so now, back to your point, is the time, and there is money out there to really take advantage of this.
1: Especially in understanding the North. You know, that's something that's, you know, Largely misunderstood, and opportunities are massive. Uh, good to have you on the show, Don. Enjoyed the chat.
11: Really, thank thank you, thank you so much, Patty. Really, really enjoyed it. Stay in touch. All right, take okay, care.
1: bye bye, Grant. He's the executive director at the Ocean Startup Project. More opportunities, right? Sprinkling in some of these big things that are out there for us to grab to seize the day. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about some storm prep on the southwest part of the province. Yeah, Tony Wakeham, who's the MHA for Stephenville Port-a-Port. He's next. Don't go away. Ah, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. It's taking to the PC member for Stephenville Port-a-Port. That's Tony Wakeham. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. I wanted to call
12: in this morning and, again, remind people of the uh, preparation that they should be doing in, for this approaching storm. It's a significant storm. It's expected to hit the west and southwest coast, including the Bay St. George area in my district. And uh, I heard Mayor Button on earlier, uh, he had spoken about uh, infrastructure, I guess his situation being complicated by infrastructure that had not yet been repaired. And we have a similar situation here in my district. Uh, The road going down through Fox Island River was uh, severely damaged by a storm surge uh, a number of months ago, and we've been trying to get action on that. But depending on the storm surge this time, and we could see that road wiped out. So that's a concern in the district. There's other areas around Knowles Pond on Route 460. There's a bridge there uh, on that goes uh, over Warren Brook that has a tendency, if we get significant amount of rains, to overflow all the time. Again, we've talked about trying to do something there, but it hasn't happened. And while Transportation Works have been out doing a good job clearing the ditches, one of the challenges is the culverts themselves because if the culvert inside the culvert is blocked then the water has nowhere to go It will build up in the ditches and it will flow across the roads and we've seen that happen in the past so that's that's another thing i hope doesn't happen but the main thing today is for people to be prepared and to take this serious so we anticipate there's a high probability that we will lose power if we do, of course, people need to have food and water on hand. They'll need to have the batteries and they need to make sure, of course, that their cell phones and others are charged, things like that. And things that people can do themselves to prepare for this, tying down their outside furniture, you know, checking the storm drains around their own property, you know, perhaps even parking your car away from trees if, if if you can do that, so to prevent damage that way. If you have a sump pump in your house, uh, perhaps make sure that's working. If you have medications, maybe have three or four days' supply. These are all things now that people need to have done or ought to be doing right now uh, before this storm hits us uh, with any significance in in our region. And that's the kind of message that I want to get out there. And one other thing is there are a lot of people that live alone. And we've had a great reputation in Newfoundland and Labrador of looking after each other. So I would encourage people to check on your neighbors, especially if we lose our power. Let's make sure that people are comfortable in their homes and and just check on them as this storm is impacting
1: us. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you mentioned power outages, and I don't know what the storm is going to bring to the island. Hopefully we get away unscathed. They're warning people in Nova Scotia that there might be 72 hours of power outages. Like, uh, this is a serious storm. It's not to be taken lightly. Don't hang your hat on whether it's a hurricane or post-tropical. There's no downside in being prepared. And I like the point you make about... Checking in on folks uh, in and around your neighborhood because not everyone has the capacity to prepare with an emergency kit or all the food or water provi- required in case we have a prolonged power outage. So that's always in all of our best interest to make sure everyone is okay, not just inside your own home. Even though we look out for number one, everyone understands that, but someone in and around your neighborhood just might need a leg up or a bit of a, a, bit of a hand here over this weekend. Uh, Tony, anything else on that front because I have another quick question for you.
12: Um, No, Patty, that that was the main thing. And and the one other thing that I tell people, you know, if your home is subject to flooding in the past in your basement, perhaps it's time to maybe if there's things you can move out of your basement now in anticipation. So to be a little more prepared in case something does happen so you don't incur as much damage. And those are just preventive things that we can do.
1: And take pictures. Yes. (laughs) Some before and afters. This is extremely helpful when you go to deal with an insurance company, so uh, I'll throw that into the mix. Tony, before we get to the news, and I have to let you go, what's the temperature like in your district when we talk about, say, World Energy GH2? I know there's some pushback, environmental concerns, and the eyesore that people refer to with the wind turbines, but then there's the upside of jobs and economic activity. What are you hearing?
12: Patty, everybody in my district and on the Port of Port Peninsula want the same thing they want what's best for the for the area and you can be an environmentalist at the same time as you could be pro development for the people of the area is you know, for the concerns they have, they want answers to the questions that they have. There are concerns, and those concerns can be answered by government and they can be answered by the company. But it's about minimizing the impacts and maximizing the benefits. And that's what needs to happen. For too long in our province, we've had a history of projects happening where people like lots of money, but at the end of the day, what is the legacy for the community? What is the legacy for the province? And that's what's so important in all of these new developments that are happening. How do we ensure that at the end of the day, the principal beneficiary of our resources are Newfoundlanders and Labradorians? And that's exactly the same thing. So let's minimize the impact, let's get the concerns addressed, and let's get the benefits maximized.
1: Yeah, what's in it for us? It's an important question, uh, and we've got to ask and we need clear answers on it. From my perspective, there's been an awful lot of contention around this. For me, it seems like because it's new. We know what mining means. We know what oil and gas means. We understand how it works. We see the upsides or people understand the environmental sensitivities. This one, because it's new, has some people just going, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know about this. I don't think it's any good. Maybe just a better understanding what it means, what the impact will be, will help us make good decisions.
12: Patty, you're absolutely right. Communication, communication, communication. I have said, and I will continue to say, an informed community is an educated community. So let's, you know, the, the onus is on government, the onus is on the company to make sure they answer the concerns of people, the legitimate concerns that people have about any new development and to make sure that we have an environmental process that's sound and people have, can have faith in and let's get, to, let's get it done that way.
1: Appreciate the time, Tony. Hope you have a good weekend. Thank you, Patty. You too. Take All care. Right. Bye bye. All right. It is indeed time for the 1130 news. When we come back, we'll be
4: speaking with you. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM.
1: Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Say so good morning to the mayor of Channel Port of Bass. That's Brian Button. Good morning, Mayor Button. You're on the air.
13: Good morning, Patty.
1: Welcome to the show. So I guess there's people in your community waiting with bated breath to see what uh, Fiona brings.
13: Yeah, I guess uh, we're waiting. Uh, we're waiting to see uh, what she's going to bring. But I guess uh, for most people right now, this the anxiety of uh, seeing what's uh, in the forecast and the impact of this, this storm and the magnitude of this one, I think uh, for residents in my community, uh, you know, they're very much on edge.
1: Uh, there's some mention of infrastructure concerns that you have. What are they, sir?
13: Well, in, in and around our community, as you know, our community is right around the shoreline. And we have a lot, of, a lot of houses, a lot of residents that are near the shore and near, near near the ocean. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's certainly a concern of thinking about these people and, and what could be in this. Uh, you know, we're trying to take every precaution or, or at least telling our residents to take every precaution. I know people want to stay and stay in their homes to protect their homes and so on and so forth, but uh, you know there, there there may come a time where we we may have to you know think about that and may have to go uh, with another family member or another friend or, or somewhere in the community. We'll have facilities and available uh, to residents in case we do run into things like that. Uh, our regular warming stations and so on and so forth, but. You know, it, it is a major concern for us, and especially with our infrastructure that is on the shoreline, and our infrastructure in the last storm sustained some damage. And, you know, we've been waiting now for, for this that's been in the system now of trying to to get the approvals from the last storm uh, to make the repairs and, and uh, I guess, reassure these, the infrastructure that's there, and we're still waiting on that
1: what can the municipality do when and if people run into trouble whether it be flooding or excessive wind damage or what have you because sometimes we have to open up like warming centers or have people to find some safe refuge what's the community preparing
13: well right now you know we have our regular warming stations that we have we'll have the alliance club available to us we'll have the salvation army of course always there to lend the hand they'll, they'll have their facilities Uh, We have the fire hall here in the community. Uh, That's another warming station right now, too. Currently, we have our Bruce 2 Sports Centre that, uh, you know, we'll use that facility if we've got to. One, I guess, one good thing, I suppose, with this storm, if there is anything good about it, uh, would be that it's this time of year and the temperatures are relatively warm. uh, And so the cold factor is not something that we're too concerned about or or not too bad. It's it's the wind, the destruction, and those type of things that and the storm surges is that it's giving us the most concern.
1: I'm sure it is. Uh, feel free to be in constant touch with us here at VOCM so we can spread whatever messaging needs to happen to get to your residents in the community. Anything else you'd like to offer before we say goodbye this morning, Mayor?
13: Well my biggest reason for calling I know a lot of our residents listen to your show faithfully and, and they're listening today. And uh, you know for those of, that are out there this is one that we need to prepare. There's no such thing as saying that you can over-prepare. You need to prepare for this one. Uh, if you've got things out around outside, I continuously try to tell people to, to get them brought in. If you're there and you have no one to do it, uh, you know, I've had a lot of people call me and say, just tell them to call me or call a neighbor or call people in the community and see if someone can help you to get that in because, With the types of winds that we're talking about, we don't need these objects to become, uh, you know, another threat that we don't need. So if there's anything we can do uh, to get that in, um, I encourage residents, if you have problems, try to contact us. We'll probably not get to everybody all at once if there's things going on, but we'll try our best. Uh, to help people out. And in the event of emergency that we need to move people, we'll try to get them out as quickly and as fast as we can and we'll get them to a safe, safe place. And if you feel unsafe, you need to let us know now and uh, we'll see what we can do to see if we can get you uh, to a place that would be you feel more comfortable.
1: We appreciate your time this morning, Mayor Button. We wish you and uh, the members of your community a safe weekend. Thank you, Patty. Take good care.
13: All right, you that too. Mayor
1: Brian Button out in Channel Port of Basque. Uh, let's go to line number four alex you're on the air how you doing patty okay this morning how you how, pardon me how about you
8: oh best time listen i just wanted to call in to uh to share my a story or an event that happened last night to me my wife and my 10-month-old child or 10-week-old child rather we were in um the tim hortons parking lot in uh, in the tim hortons drive rather. In Mount Pearl, and, you know, just waiting for a tea. We were in the in the queue, you know, probably going to pull up to the window shortly. And we noticed this individual walking out of the drive-thru, and he had, like, backpack on and pretty much, like, winterized clothing, right? So he caught in front of the vehicle, and, like, as he was walking, he, he wanted to walk down by the dumpsters behind the building. And, uh, you know, he went down there, and uh, he was staggering the whole time, side to side. He had his head lowered. You know, f- fist up to his mouth as if he was going to vomit type of thing. And when he reached the dumpsters, he, he collapsed like he fell over on his side, right? So anyway, I said to my wife, I said, all right, you know, that's just someone who's drunk now, probably got, you know, kicked out of Tim Hortons because he was clearly intoxicated. You could you could tell. So anyway, I just got my tea and we pulled over to the side of the parking lot, picked the parking spot, and this guy, he was kind of standing next to a motorcycle, you know i just thought this guy was just wanting to sit on the curb type of thing you anyway, know i called the rnc non-emergency line i said hey you know just want to let you know that there's there's an individual you know intoxicated in, in the tim hortons parking loss uh he's staggering he he tripped over himself he's falling down he's just very just being a nuisance at this point right anyway never thought much of this uh they they, they asked they, the dispatcher said yes probably got someone on the way Gets a call an hour later from the RNC, and they said, hey, uh, you know, you called in, you know, reports of a drunk driver. And I said, no, but I didn't, you know, call in reports of a drunk driver. I just, you know, called in reports of what I thought was someone intoxicated walking, cause just based on his, appear, you know, his appearance. Anyway, he said, no, he said he was driving. He tried to get on a motorcycle as we left, and we caught him, and he's being arrested for a DUI. So I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> absolutely unbelievable
1: so i mean people are encouraged if you see something say something that includes someone who was obviously intoxicated getting behind the wheel so is the point of your call to say that we should be doing things like that or what's the summary statement
8: yeah yeah i think that's that's the point of the call here today you know people always say like what can i do well you can call the police you can observe people you can you can kind of, you know, if someone's walking out of Tim Hortons and you're staggering, follow them. Where, where are they going? They're obviously, there's an issue here. And, you know, I just think we have to, you know, not only observe kind of what's going on in our communities, but just take action to, and don't be afraid to call the RNC. And what I thought was just a, just a, just, you know, a drunk guy who's, you know, didn't see him get in a vehicle at all. Didn't see him touch the motorcycle at this point. Didn't see him. I just, you know, called for his, pretty much his own health turned out to be a, a drunk driver that's you know I'm, I'm glad to say that i got off the road last night because when the rnc showed up he tried to mount the vehicle and take off and they, of course they did what they had to do so that, that's the point of the call here if you see something say something and don't be afraid to you know if something doesn't seem right it's not right and i guess it just you know i've called in on drunk drivers before but it just hit a little bit different last night because i had my 10 week old son in the car and we live in this neighborhood and You know, yes, last night, it was 6.30 in the evening, so last night was, you know, we were going to Tim Hortons, but that could have very easily been a walk to Tim Hortons in a stroller. So anyway, it just hit me a little bit different, and I wanted to call in to remind the listeners just to be a bit diligent and, you know, notice who's around and what they're doing. I,
1: I did it once, and this was a number of years ago, and it wasn't 6.30 in the evening, it was 8.30 in the morning. And Buddy was obviously loaded drunk, and he was crossing over the the solid lines. His tires were hitting the rocky shoulder of the road. He was bobbing and weaving like it was nobody's business. It was really quite clear. And so when we called, there happened to be an RNC cruiser not too far ahead of us. It was on Logie Bay Road, as a matter of fact. And Mm -hmm. they they stopped him, and I I was told that, yes, sir, he blew something like three or four times over the limit, 8.30 in the morning, the poor fellow with obviously some underlying issues. Uh, Alex, uh, appreciate the call this morning. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no problem, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank
8: you, too. Bye.
1: All right, final break of the morning, final break of the week. When we come back, Tony's there to talk about doctor shortages, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. All right, let's see. Line number one. Tony, you're on the air. Hey. Hello. Yes. Hold
14: so on, I was talking to you now, It feels like a first-time caller.
1: <laughs> Welcome back, Tony.
14: Yes. I, I, was, to, I was listening to uh, Dr. Z- uh, uh, Z- uh, what's his name? Haggy and when he was... Minister of the, of the Health, and also from the Tom. And they're saying about the all incentives they were offering the doctors. And, in fact, they took them all away. And we had one doctor here graduating not too long ago, and never even, she never even got an offer, and now she's over in PEI. And she spoke on that herself. And uh, there was another doctor in In, in fact, my wife's doctor and was mine the last few months, but, but now she closed her clinic last month after five years having a clinic and she's moving away because her husband is a doctor and can't get a job here. So and her sons are graduating to be doctors in another couple of years and they're all moved away up to Toronto. So now they can work up there but he can't work down here. So I mean just as this goes on and on all the incentives, I know I was talking to a doctor also who's now he lost all of his incentives and he and now he's he drives two hours a day with anything he's just all of his own pocket. And I mean it's just ongoing and just and they're coming out saying and what they're doing, they're forcing the doctors out of here by by low-bottom offers that they're getting. And, I mean, I, was, uh, I hear a doctor, uh, uh, she had a piece out about uh, she's got an offer. They offer her, she's in Trapassi, and they wanted her to drive two days a week to Holyrood. I mean, that's about two and a half hours one way, I guess. And then they wanted her to go to St. Mary's as well, and all out of her own pocket. They wouldn't even give her uh, the only anything she asked for for the first year, $7,500. And they wouldn't even give that. She said, no, take it or leave it. So basically what they're doing is forcing doctors out of there, but yet coming on and saying, We're offering this and we're offering that and basically they're not offering anything. And I mean it's time now for the people to stand up for the doctors because the doctors are fighting for us. And, I mean they can go anywhere and get better. I mean you got a doctor that was from Tor Bay, Loki Bay, and he's in B C. And when he came out with that offer they phoned us and we'll hire you and why where you're you know, where are you from? And he hired us couple three calls to get a hold to somebody and when he got a hold of the minister. And in fact he was told that he he was no incentives then he'd had to take a forty to sixty percent cut just to come home. And he won no incentives whatsoever for rural areas. So I mean they're coming out this information that they're doing that's just all false what they're giving the people. And I mean they're closing down clinics left, right and center. I mean the emergency clinic in in uh down at Bonavista, the first time in over hundred and forty years, they never had a doctor. So it goes to tell you, you know, what what this government has been doing. And I mean we got over three thousand people dead because of the lack of doctors and
1: Where's that number come from?
14: Uh, they were was, was coming out there, coming out there on the news, and not too long people already died because of the lack of getting in to see a specialist. And there was thousands of other doctors waiting to get in, or patients to get in for surgeries, and that couldn't get in.
1: Isn't that a reference to excess death number? Excess deaths numbers that have been reported in every province, and never does it subscribe to the fact that someone didn't see a doctor? Right?
14: Well, here they couldn't get in to see and They couldn't get in that surgery, and that's why there was, there was was they were saying at that, that time it was 3,000, so I'm sure it was over that now. And we got a hundred, but one hundred thirty thousand people waiting to get in to see a doctor, which deadly disease they can't even get in to see them.
1: So, just for clarification, your suggestion you're suggesting that the government of the day is trying to get rid of doctors to harm the citizens.
14: Well, then why would you come? Why would you come out and say we got a plan for a long term, short time, middle term? And they didn't have no plan when we came out. I mean, that that was there last year, and when the doctors went in, and found out there was no plan. I mean the. The president of the doctor association was on telling that on, on T V and they never know was no money there for a recruitment. So I mean, this is what and they're coming out and telling you the opposite and when Haggie was there as the president, he was told at that time he was negotiating with government and if they didn't give them the same thing as they did anywhere in this province or anywhere in this country, that they were all going to leave the province. And now you gotta you're you're all balling the doctors, and I mean, like that one doctor, he graduated, he said he had a half-million-dollar debt by the time he graduated, and he would had to take a 40 to 60% cut with no incentives, which they're coming out and saying all oh, the incentives that they're offering the doctors, when, in fact, they were taken away. I know, we talk, I know one doctor, in fact, that he drives again, he drives two hours a day, not a penny, it's all coming out of his own pocket. So, I mean, when they're coming out, they have never told the truth, and they won't even answer a question. And I heard Jan asking some people's questions, and, and they'll say, well, we can't talk we can't answer that right now. Because there's all false information that they're putting out there. I mean, this, it's just unreal what's going on here. And it's time for the people now, time for us to start fighting and putting out. And I know people don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. But hopefully now it's not going to be too long. There's some, something out there for people to sign and uh, on behalf of the, the support for the people here and the support of the doctors. we got to support the doctors. Because, like I said, doctors can go anywhere and go to work and get better pay and probably, you know, more. But they love it here. They love it here. They want to stay here. Like the doctor that I had for a a couple of months, a family doctor that was my wife's doctor at the time, and she closed her clinic last month. And she loves it here. She wants to come back here. Her husband and her family wants to come back here. And she said hopefully she'll come back. But right now she can't. So, I mean, it's uh, this is what's going on. So when the government gets on there with all this crap, and I mean, I know Tom these last 20 years, and I respect him as a person, as a private person, individual. I respect him. But what he's doing now? he's just doing the same thing that the rest of the government is doing. and That's something I can't respect, when you're putting people's lives in danger by feeding them this false information. Because what they're doing now, it's almost like you're hooked up That they You want to turn everything into virtual. Yes.
1: I think there's was a, a conversation be had about who spreads false information.
14: Well, I mean, this is facts. It was on the news. So, I mean, and I'm getting it from the doctors as well. I mean, okay. the doctors all over the last week, the last year. I mean, they were out every week. And there was, the surgeons were out there. One of the surgeons I was watching when he was slow motion one night, he said, or two and a half years he was there, and they weren't allowed at that time to do surgeries because of the COVID. And he was sitting on his hands doing nothing. I mean, thousands of people waiting to get in, dying. But, you, you know, forget cancer patients could take chemotherapy and, and radiation, which makes their systems weak and open to virus.
1: No cancer treatment was delayed.
14: Uh, was, the surgeon was delayed.
1: No the cancer treatment. treatments were delayed, just none. I mean, uh,
14: the surgeons, there. no, surgeons,
1: no cancer treatments were delayed, were none. I mean,
14: that was that was the thing when the surgery was cancelled. Now you can't even now they don't know when they're going to get in, even uh, now because the doctors are so short. <clears throat> so I mean, people, we got to start doing stuff, and hopefully now, like I said, in a short little time, people will have a pay- place they can sign up and and speak there give their opinion because right now a lot of, you know some people don't don't want there's not up the phone on the radio station and everything else so i mean hopefully now things will change and, and make them accountable for what they say and what they're doing
1: appreciate the time tony have a nice weekend
14: yes you too and you and the family
1: okay all the best bye-bye Bye. will we sneak urn on here dave yeah all right the obviously it's going to be a quick word line number three earn you're on the air Hey there, boys. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How about you? You've got a 30 se- or 45 seconds. 45
11: seconds.
0: That sounds good. Now, as you all know, Newfoundland's been in a rather rough spot for the economy. We've always been wondering where the job's coming from, where to, where's the next job going to as well. Mainly oil, gas, natural resources. But there's one thing I will never forget. My Rest Easy mattress from Harbor Grace. The best spot in the world. Firstly, if you ask me, we bring back that factory and we make this island a better place, better mattresses for all.
1: Why don't you go at it? Huh? Why don't you do it?
11: Why don't I do it? Well, that's a great question. I mean, my mattress lasted me 30 years, and it, it was true. a lot, let me tell you. And
0: I think there could be a possibility, yes? I mean, I'm only down the road from it. I'm only in Ampton, so I think it might just have to happen.
1: When did it close?
0: When did it close? Jeez, uh, I wasn't home then. I was up in Alberta. Okay. I think, oh, I think the 90s, maybe.
1: Okay. I'm not even familiar with it, but I was gone for the entirety of the 90s. Uh, appreciate the time, Ern. You've had the last word, a job creation idea. Love it.
0: Thanks you very much, boys. And VOCM rocks.
1: Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Have a nice weekend. You too, boys. All right. Bye bye. Uh, there we go. Ern did indeed have the last word, but we'll pick up this conversation again on Monday morning, right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. For those of you in the Crosshairs of uh, Fiona, hopefully you have a safe weekend. We'll talk on Monday. Bye-bye.